The topics and opinions expressed in the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4CY Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4CY Radio, its employees, or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4CY Radio. Connected Table Live. We're your hosts, Melanie Young and David Ransom, your insatiably curious culinary couple. Each week we bring you the dynamic people who work front and center and behind the scenes in food, wine, spirits, and hospitality. Ours is a delicious life and we love sharing it with you. You can follow all of our escapades online at Twitter, Connected Table, Instagram, The Connected Table, Facebook, Connected Table, and of course, our blog. And find out more about what we do in Wine and Spirits to help build brands and report and tell stories at theconnectedtable.com. Oh my gosh, it is such a beautiful day in New York State for everyone who is listening. The sun is bright. We just had a a deeply moving 15th um, anniversary memorial for September 11th attacks at the World Trade Center um, I did a tribute to the restaurant we lost there, Windows of the World, which I was consulting with at the time of the attacks. You can find more on that at my blog this week at theconnectedtable.com. Um, up where we are in the Hudson Valley in Gardner, New York, uh, near New Paltz and Mohawk Mountain House, there are just a few leaves that are starting to turn yellow, but the sun is warm and it's perfect for hiking, biking, and the last beautiful bursts of sunflowers. And for that reason, we decided to go back to the farm and the food that makes us happy. So we're calling this show Sugar, Spice, and Chocolate. Well, more like Spice and Chocolate. And so in our first segment, we're going to be talking with a neighbor of ours, Nirmala Noreen, who has a farm uh, and a company called Nirmala's Kitchen. Uh, Eric Repair of La Bernadette has called Nirmala the Indiana Jones of Spices. How about that for a moniker? She has a successful global spice company, a television show um, called Nirmala's Spice World. She's written numerous cookbooks, and she's traveled to over 167 countries in search of spices, many of which she sells to the world's top chefs. Nirmala is also um, a travel memorist, cookbook author, and she has a young adult book called El Shiva's Cinnamon. And she's also uh, uh, established a charity called Nirmala's Global Village, a foundation dedicated to empowering orphans. But what's interesting, you go, wow, she's, you know, big, a big mogul. Wow. We're going to talk about that. But this is kind of interesting. Nirmala revealed to me on a bus ride down to New York one day when she was sharing her story that she grew up in the South American country of Guyana in a small house with no running water or electricity and pretty much had to fend for herself as a young girl. So that was quite an interesting start to where she has come now. She does have a beautiful farm in Gardner, which we are going to be visiting this weekend. And it is an honor to have her on the show in our first segment. So Nirmala, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie. It's a pleasure to be here with you. 
Well, you know, we've known each other through um, the Hudson Valley Connection. You um, are uh, uh, regularly at the Specialty Food Association's Fancy Food Show, and you're very involved there. And we've shared a few bus rides together and yoga classes. Yes, and the bus driver had to tell us to shut up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he was just getting hungry. Let's just talk about it a little bit. I was so intrigued about how you you know, grew up as a little girl in Guyana and then eventually your family moved to Queens. Um, tell us about that little journey and how it shaped you to where you became the global entrepreneur and, and travel you are today. <laughs> well, life from uh, Guyana was completely, completely different. Um, it was very, very rustic, like a rustic lifestyle. Food for us was all about survival. It wasn't about fancy presentation or anything like that. Um, I come from a generation of uh, generation of farmers. My dad was a sugarcane cutter. My mother was uh, a farmer. She tended to the vegetables and the rice fields uh, with the help of my two brothers. And I was home, being the only girl. Uh, to you know, I was being domesticated at home for marriage. <laughs> And so um, I think I I started cooking probably at age of four with uh, no running water, electricity, and gather my own firewood and so forth. But I had my grandfather home who was the Ayurvedic scholar. So he tended to the ailments of villagers from there and afar, and uh, he uh, gave them Ayurvedic uh, remedies. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, fast forward, I came to New York City when I was about 10 years old to Queens. And, um, you know, those Ayurvedic lessons left an indelible imprint. Um, I would, uh, back home in Guyana as a little girl, I would grind spices, barks, leaves, and roots. Uh, you know, it would be the ancient spices from India that, of course, with our Indian roots and heritage uh, that we were, you know, we cooked with and, and so forth. And also the Arawak Indians of South America, they use things from the Amazon like barks and leaves. So we incorporated stuff from two continents. And I would make tonics and poultices and remedies for people with diabetes, high blood pressure and so on, of course, with the guidance of my grandfather. And I didn't know what I was making, but I made them. And naturally, I tasted everything as every child, you know, put anything in their mouth. <laughs> and, yeah. and little did I know I was cultivating a very, very sophisticated palate. So that's, it all was uh, bred in this uh, small little Amazonian village in South America. Yeah, Guyana, I've never, I've been to <laughs> South America. I've never been to Guyana. Guyana. It's on the... Uh, it's, it's on the yeah. It's, no, it's on the top. It's on the top the of top. Uh, yeah. The top of it was the three Guyanas. And right. since we're talking about sugar which, and spice and chocolate, which Guyana were you? Because there was Dutch, British. British yes, British? it was okay, British. British yeah, okay. and like Demerara sugar. You know, we mm-hmm. all go to the store. We see Demerara sugar. That mm-hmm. came. That sugar came from a plantation in the Demerara section when the Dutch had occupied Guyana at that point. Um, and then the British came and took over, and Guyana gained its independence, I think, in 1960s or so. Um, and um, and so um, it's the only English-speaking country in South America, by the way. So, um, I know that. Yeah, yeah. And then next to it is Dutch Guyana, was Dutch Guyana, which is Suriname, and then there is French Guyana which the French still uh, owns, and they launch all their missiles and stuff like that uh, from there, which is really wonderful. What brought you, your family to New York and Queens, out of curiosity? 
Uh, well, like every immigrant family uh, in this country, they want uh, their child to have a better education right. um, and a better place. And, you know, I don't think my parents wanted us to be farmers like them to work. <laughs> yet, I, yet here I am in New York City. A farm. Yeah, <laughs> as a farmer. It uh, doesn't leave your blood. Um, and they didn't want that. And they wanted us uh, to have better opportunities. So my uncle, my dad's um, older, uh, my mom's uh, oldest brother, uh, came to the United States and they t- in the 1960s and they told him, uh, listen, if you sign up for the Vietnam War, because Americans didn't want to go and fight for the Vietnam War, uh-huh. that will give you U.S. citizenship. So he took oh, wow. it. And he served two tours and, you know, his back is like riddled with the bullet scars and so forth. Wow. And he sponsored my grandmother um, and uh, then my mom and uh, my dad and my three brothers and we came here and... Uh, I never saw anything like television or like lights. So it was just amazing to come to this country. And of course, me and my three brothers, we all are successful. We have, you know, uh, an education. We're living the American dream. So, uh, you know, I think most uh, immigrants, when they come to this country, they want betterment for their kids, you know. Right. Um, so that, so basically that that was it, you know. Well, you know, that's, you know, I mean, this country was built on the backs of immigrants and yours, right. an, it, yours and your family are a perfect story about that. And, you know, flash forward, as I said at the top of the show, you know, Eric Repairs called you the Indiana Jones of spices. <laughs> you know, what prompted you to journey to 167 countries and start, what was your, what was your, t- share that epiphany of why you decided to start a spice company? Well, I was in corporate America for a very long time. And as I'm sure many of your listeners are probably listening, like, why am I at a desk job? <laughs> it's so yeah. repetitive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then one day I, you know, I find myself in Zanzibar, uh, which is the, called the Spice Island. And I went there to actually visit the Mangapwani slave caves because in Guyana, a lot of our history was about slavery. So I was very intrigued about, you know, how would another human being treat somebody? And so I did this travel to Africa, East and West Africa. But I ended up in Zanzibar and uh, I went on top of a clove tree one day and I brought the warm scent of cloves to my nose and then this like gush of like memories flooded me um, as my grandfather chewed cloves and he always had them in his shirt pocket so I always would smell you know press my nose against his shirt pocket and then I'm like I'm coming back to New York and I'm quitting my job which I did and um and started a spice company because I felt, you know, here what was missing in the United States uh, on the American food table, besides the abundance of food, is I wanted to unite cultures through food and stories surrounding the cuisine and what does that, what connects uh, cuisines from different parts besides the story and spices, and um, which is a no-brainer because, of course, you know, that was in my blood. It was like from childhood. And, um, and, you know, spices are the soul of every cuisine. Um, and so, you know, I, I would take, you know, show home cooks how to take that one cultural spice dish, whether it's Moroccan, Thai, African, Indonesian, South American, Australian, 
and, you know, showed them not only how to cook with it, but also how to make beauty products, you know, like these mm-hmm. secrets that these women in Java uses or in India. Um, and also show them how these spices are like little vitamins that they can heal your body. So that was the premise for starting Normala's Kitchen. And then, of course, any brand that you build, you have to add accessory to it. So like right. educational tools like the uh, travel memoir cookbooks and my television show, Normala's Spice World. So, um, and then, you know, here I am at the farm. <laughs> and, and as I understand, you're actually opening, you can buy the spices online at Nirmala's, N-I-R-M-A-L-A-S, kitchen.com. But you're also opening your first brick and mortar? Yes, yes. Tell uh, us about that. I, I have the barn uh, where I live. It was a former rodeo. Um, it's in Highland, adjacent to New Paltz, mm-hmm. like about a mile from the exit. And... Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I converted one of the small barns, you know, as my studio workshop. And then I would have people from the press come and interview me. And they're like, why don't you make this into a spice shop? I'm like, I really don't want to do a brick and mortar because I do mainly wholesale. Right. So I, I figured, you know, a lot of residents here in the Hudson Valley, um, you know, we grow a bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. And um, like, why not t- show them how to use the wonderful spices uh, to incorporate into those uh, fresh fruits and vegetables because, of course, spices, you know, they have no calories, no fat, uh, no cholesterol and so forth. And I've also been uh, planting blueberries and lavender on the farm, and I incorporate that into some of the spice, uh, the spices I import from the small farmers around the world. So, You know, that's fascinating. For those listening, since this is a national show, um, the region we're talking about is just roughly 90 minutes north of New York City to the west of the Hudson River, and it's in a very fertile area abutted by um, down more closer to us are mountains, the Schwagunk Mountains, which are the oldest mountain range. It's a very fertile area yeah. with a lot of farms, and in New York City, when you see the green markets and the different pocket parks, much of the produce is from the Hudson Valley. So just to put it into perspective for those of our listeners who um, are not in the area, just so they can visualize it. So you have a farm, and but most of your business is business to business. You sell to top chefs and... and Specialty other, food yeah. stores. Yeah. Uh, you know, some uh, online stores and so forth. Um, and, Museums, and which a, I love. <laughs> oh, you do, and you also have an Ayurvedic, your, your Ayurvedic business as well. Or you're building yeah. that like a wellness Well, yeah, what I've been doing is I've been taking uh, the goat's milk uh, from the farm. I've been making goat's milk soap with uh, lavender and turmeric and ginger and lemongrass and so forth. So that's my unisex Ayurvedic line. And you can get those uh, at the spice shop in the Hudson Valley. Um, and, uh, you know, so I'm trying to incorporate, you know, my Ayurvedic experience into, I've done it with the food, uh, with my television show where I show you the, the, I, where I tell you about the holistic properties of the spices and I also show you how to make the beauty products. But I thought, you know, why not add that, um, to the, to the farm because it's just a perfect matrimony, so to speak. It really is. And, and, and what you put in your body, you usually you can put on your body. That's and we're going right, to dive yeah. into that. Before we go into that, uh, let, our, let our listeners know where they can uh, see your show. Um, where is oh, it it's Nirmala's, uh, Nirmala's Spice World, and it's on Z Living. And it's, uh, you can watch it online. There are episodes on our website at nirmalaskitchen.com and um, on, on Z Living. So you can watch that uh, online as well. 
And and I suggest that the recipes that you have on your website are really beautiful. I can't wait to try some because we're really focusing here uh, in our household in vegetable-based cooking. Now, I do want to talk about that because we're now, uh, both of us working on, due to cholesterol, high blood pressure, low-sodium diet. Mm. And so we are trying very hard to eliminate salt and uh, also gluten, which is a whole other issue, from our diets. Yeah. And the beauty is that... Um, Spices and fresh herbs really can replace salt and give the food the flavor and the excitement that you want so you're not just eating vegetables. Um, and it's also very healing. What, are, what do you feel are some essential spices that everybody should have in their pantry? Um, for, for, you know, I, I always tell people that, of course, the first thing that comes is, is cinnamon, uh, number one, because it's a powerful, powerful antibacterial, it has powerful yes. antibacterial agents and, mm-hmm. uh, recent studies have shown that cinnamon has properties that help with, uh, insulin resistance. And this yes. is, uh, a, a, a teaching from my childhood. Uh, that my grandfather knew that it, it helped villagers. So that's why we used to make all these beautiful spice remedies and put it in old lotus leaves or old newspapers and wrap it up and give it to the villagers. <laughs> and it was very popular with people with type 2 diabetes. Um, and you control your blood sugar variations. I mean, he didn't have to be a scientist or a modern-day doctor to figure it out. I mean, Ayurveda has been in existence for over 5,000 years, yes. and and it's been curing all of these people, you know, helping with all sorts of ailments. And today, recently, we start to discover these things. Um uh, cinnamon oil is also promising um, a treatment of tumors, gastric cancers, and melanomas, and uh, so forth. And also for cooking, you know, people always think, oh, cinnamon, I can just bake with it. But if you take a, a grilled salmon fillet and you add a touch of agave and you brush it on and you bake it, it's like really, really awesome. And you could put no sugar in there. And, you know, that's a recipe you should try, <laughs> Melanie. <laughs> well, I uh, put cinnamon in my coffee because I stopped putting dairy in my coffee and yeah. I use cinnamon I use cinnamon a lot because I'm trying to have less sugar. So often what I'll do, Nirmala, is do coconut and cinnamon. Oh wow, coconut yeah. milk. Yeah, yeah. That's that's it sounds delicious. Um, yeah. It's very and, good. So let's talk about some other spices that you like everyone fennel. should have. Yeah, mm-hmm. fennel very good. is, is yeah. very good. Of course, you know, uh, it, it aids in digestion and it's a popular breath freshener. If, you have no, if you've frequented, you and David frequented Indian restaurants, when you walk yes. out, you see like a mixture of spices and fennel is one of those spices in there. And it has like a licorice taste mm-hmm. to it. You can sprinkle it on breads, cakes, uh, salads, sautéed and vegetables and uh you know, keep some in the house and always, uh, you know, chew them, especially if you're experiencing a new cuisine. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't think I could do Mexican. I don't think I could do Thai or Indian. You know, explore, you know, try a little and always, uh, you know, uh, reach for that after the meal rather than an Alka-Seltzer or one of those exactly. things that are made <laughs> in a pharmaceutical company, you know, exactly. so, you know, reach for the spices and... Mm-hmm. Um, another one that I really, really like, and I, and I try to incorporate into recipes, especially when I teach kids and adolescents is cumin, you know, it, yeah, it tastes great and everything. And it's a great, great source of iron, um, for the kids and, you know, uh, and women who are pregnant or lactating. So, um, the iron and the cumin on grilled corn and sauces and a pot of chili in the winter, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's really good. 
Um, let's see what else is uh, I think is indispensable. Well, the uh, in, the in one right now is turmeric. That's the in spice. Yeah, right? well, turmeric. Yeah, turmeric is a wide range of health benefits. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's an anti-inflammatory. Right. It's been shown to decrease uh, cancer risk. Right. And uh, you know, you're talking about vegetable that you're in this vegetable kick now. Like example, if you put like uh, if you take like carrots and pumpkins, of course they have beta carotene. And right. if you add like a uh, two teaspoons of it to the cooked recipe, you know, take, you know, that it really enhances the benefits of, of, of the turmeric, mm-hmm. um, uh, in, in the dish, you know, you could also take a, uh, I would recommend, uh, people always say, how do you use the turmeric powder? I would take mm-hmm. like a teaspoon a day in shakes or salad dressings and so forth. Well, you know what I do is I do, and this is trendy now, a lot of chefs are doing these turmeric chai lattes. I just get warm almond milk. Mm-hmm. And put my turmeric in that, and have that sometimes at night. It's just delicious. Yeah, you know, as a child, we we had um, in Guyana, we didn't, we weren't that rich to buy cow's milk, so mm-hmm. we had coconut milk. So mm. my mom used to give us uh, warm coconut milk with turmeric. And in places like in India, uh, every child that goes to sleep before night gets this. Uh, glass of milk with turmeric uh so they've been using that for hundreds and hundreds of years yeah for everybody listening because on my monday show we talked about how a lot of women like to medicate with wine at at night to go to sleep instead (laughs) warm your milk and put turmeric in it don't drink wine drink wine before wine before nine (laughs) (laughs) that's my line and then and then get your warm uh milk or almond milk if you're plant-based and put some turmeric in it or cinnamon and you will sleep like a baby yeah, yeah, it's really good for you. And, you know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just think of spices. Like, you know, uh, spices are, you know, they have no calories, they have no fats, they're full mm-hmm. of vitamins, and you can use it to make savory dishes, drinks, and desserts, mm-hmm. everything. You know, if you incorporate that into it, you know, it's like taking a little vitamin. Um, you know, all these vitamins have these, you know, antioxidant stuff in there. Mm-hmm. But if we can take the source, the real products, then it's not. You know, your vitamins is filled up, I think, with fillers and... Uh, right. You have to be very careful about your vitamins and where yeah, you Yeah. So I have to ask you this, as I cringe <laughs> thinking about my spice cabinet, and I mean cringe, how I gotta long you should up. you keep your spices? I mean, if you came over to our house, you, you would be like, oh, that's it. I'm cleaning this out. But how long, what is the shelf life of spices once they're Well, open? I tell you, if I come over to the house... Mm-hmm. I see your spices in plastic bags or glass jars. I'll just probably throw them out. Um, you Oops. should never, yeah, you should. That's why all of our spices Oops. are in tins. Um, uh-huh. The stuff that you see heaped up and like when you're traveling, I mean, that's so nasty. It could be contaminated, number one. Um, oh. And yeah, like you go to the bazaar in Morocco or India, you see the heaps of spices. Mm-hmm. And then you see like animals on, on the road and, you know, dust and, you know, it's just nasty stuff. And Ooh, I think uh, I bought some of those spices. They're still <laughs> in our, they're in our bread bin, still in the plastic. Oh my baggie. God. Well, and, you know, and that was what, 2012. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what happens is the spices, they lose their color and, right, right. uh, and, you know, all the vo- volatile oils in it. So, um, I always recommend to buy whole spices, mm-hmm. like buy whole nutmeg, uh, whole mm-hmm. cinnamon sticks, you know, whole cloves, whole cumin seeds. Uh, so this way, if you uh, want to use cumin, you'd pan roast it for 
30 seconds and then you ground it up and you put it in your food. All the volatile oils and the vitamins, are all, all of that is still in the spice in its whole form. So when you buy your whole spices, the whole spices would stay from 12 to 18 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're buying like ground spice, like a Moroccan tagine, a South African piripiri or a curry powder, they have a shelf life of, uh, of 12 months. That's how you should um, keep them. And also, here's a tip. When you when you have your old spices, like if I come over to your house and I like see like whole nutmegs and cinnamon mm-hmm. sticks that you've had for three years. Oh, uh, ten. <laughs> we're not going to throw them out. We'll actually pound them up, grind okay. them, and put it in your coconut milk and make your uh, warm uh, coconut uh, milk chai for you. Well, that's so. a day. You know what? This is what we're going to do. We're going to do that, and then I'm going to write a follow-up to the show. But all the things <laughs> I learned when you came out and you cleaned out our spice cabinet showed us how to repurpose. Oh, my God. That would be awesome. Yeah. That would be awesome. <laughs> once, once, once we pick you up off the floor in shock. So um, <laughs> one last question before we leave you. You've been to 167 countries. Is there a, a country with a spice you have not visited or tried yet or want to go on your, bike, uh, your spice bucket list? Well, I have. Uh, I would like to go back to Kalimantan, which is in the jungles of. Uh, it's an island in Indonesia, and I, I found white cardamom. Some farmer had bought it out uh, with his donkey, and they're like, "Oh, you need to go into the jungle." So, um, I think that would be my uh, my quest for white cardamom. And this is not like the bleached cardamom that you see white cardamom in the store. Uh, basically, that's not true white cardamom. It is bleached. So they, it's the green cardamom that they bleached mm. uh, to make it white. Um, so um, that's my uh, that's my next uh, quest on that. And um, for, you know, for uh, for for a new spice, you know, who knows when I'm in the jungle, it's like when I discover, you know, new things and so forth and um, uh, and incorporate that into the um into the one spice stable feast, which is has a very long waiting list um, here in New York. Um, so I would take a spice like that, and I would mm-hmm. incorporate it into um, uh, cooking classes and mm-hmm. uh, that uh, tasting menu and so forth. So, well, it's a fascinating topic, and you know, you've written a number of books, which everybody can find on your website, in your Mala's Kitchen, and you've written um, El, El Shiva's Cinnamon for Cinnamon, Young yes. Adults, and a lot of travel memoirs, and I'm sure there's another one coming out about this <laughs> because I think there's more books. It's it's, yes. it's a spice adventure, and what I love about it is when you taste a spice or smell a spice, you, you, there's a story behind them all, the culture. That's right, uh, and it's so interesting. So everybody, you know, get your spice on, check out Nirmala's Kitchen. Um, come up to the Hudson Valley and pay her a visit. We're going to, and, and we're going to follow up on that repurposing our spice cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a project. Oh, my goodness. Jamala, thank you so much for being oh our pleasure. guest today. Um, I'm going to take some of those tips and have a little spice uh, fennel in my, uh, chew a little fennel from my stomach right now, and, <laughs> and uh, we'll hopefully see you soon. So thank yes. you for being here today. My pleasure. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to The Connected Table Live. I am your co-host, Melanie Young, and we'll be back and talk about chocolate in the next segment.
and we're back with the Connected Table Live. I am your host, Melanie Young. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm riding solo this sh- uh, wonderful show, and we are having a theme of spice and chocolate. Doesn't that sound good? Um, because we like to start every season, because we're kind of moving into fall, with a change of flavors. So we're kind of thinking spice and chocolate and all the good things that come with that. Uh, as we head into the holidays. Uh, Before we go to our our next guest, I do want to uh, make note of the um, passing, I think yesterday, of pastry chef Albert Kuman, who uh, I came to know. I think he was the first outstanding pastry chef awarded at the James Beard Foundation Awards. He um, really was a legend. I think he was 94. He served in the uh, White House kitchen under President uh, Jimmy Carter. And he was uh, one of the top pastry chef educators in the country. Um, You know, this is long before, you know, television pastry chefs and celebrities and competitive. You know, he was very true to teaching and to the pastry kitchen. And for anyone who knows and respects the pastry profession, um, it is uh, an interesting one because you have very strange hours. You work very, 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 very early, early hours. It's a very dedicated profession. And um, you spin these amazing concoctions, and Albert Cuman did. And uh, so uh, our hearts got to his family and to the pastry chef community, which leads me into our next segment because we're talking with someone who has worked with uh, some of the great pastry chefs of the world and is a renowned uh, pastry chef and chocolatier um, with a company that I love, L.A. Burdick Chocolates, which is handmade artisan chocolates uh, with a great story. Uh, we're talking with Michael Klug, who comes from Germany. Um, so he comes That's from correct. the European And he has worked with some pretty major chefs like Greg Coons, who we hope to have on the show soon. And uh, he is the head chocolatier at L.A. Burdick Chocolates, which is now headquartered in New York but has um, – branches in California and New Hampshire where uh, kind of started, sort of started, and is opening a new store, brick-and-mortar location uh, in Soho, New York this month, and also you can order online. So, Michael Klug, welcome to The Connected Table Live. Yeah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. A little correction, we're actually, we're not in California, not that anybody's looking for us there. Oh, well, you should be. <laughs> no, yeah, we should. But oh, I'm sorry, actually, Cambridge. We're actually, we're actually Boston, Cambridge, right. Boston, and New York, and we're actually headquartered in New Hampshire. So That's, that's it. That's well, you know, I was wondering record. about that. Yeah, sorry about that. I, I was thinking C, and you should be in California, but no, you're in Boston, yeah. Cambridge, and you are headquartered, which is yeah, pretty It comes a lot to the L.A. in the beginning. A lot of people ask us, oh, actually from Los Angeles. No, that actually stands for Lawrence Allen, but that's okay. Well, you know, which is a good segue, uh, Michael. Let's talk a little bit about the history of uh, L.A. Burdick. It's not L.A. Los Angeles. It's Lawrence Allen Burdick and his wife, Paula, who started the business in New Hampshire, Walpole, New Hampshire, uh, which is a very progressive state. Um, and, And tell us a little bit about the origins of the company. Well, the whole company started with, with Lawrence, which we call Larry, and he called himself that way, uh, started the company after he did some really, I would say, like traveling years in Europe, mostly in, in Paris, but then also a long extended time in Switzerland. And mm-hmm. uh, he d- was at the beginning of his professional career and just more stumbled into the food business and was totally fascinated by it. And like how, did mostly about, Wait, how did he stumble into the business? Kind of, he wanted to get experience <laughs> with, with, with something that would interest him, and so he wanted uh-huh. to travel 
and he was really young in his 20s at that point, and uh, then got through a friend who was Swiss involved into food business. And then he worked in several kitchens and then got really, really hooked on chocolate and absorbed it like, like a foam. It was like so much information that he gathered and was so fascinated with it. And during that time, actually, the classic chocolate techniques are come from Switzerland. Um, so he uh, worked in several different hand-dipped, uh, old-world fashion-styled uh, chocolate places in Switzerland. And after several years, he said, like, well, he went back to the United States and he had this vision, like, hey, nobody's doing this here. And... Uh, he started it out, at that point they still lived actually in New York City, like making chocolates in his right. apartment. And then um, the first people who were really interested were some of the top uh, high-end uh, gastronomy places in New York, which was one of them was Boulay. And um, mm -hmm. he just like hand-delivered his, his, his precious little chocolates and then from there started into a, a handmade chocolate business. And during that time, it was back in 1987, um, it was really a pioneer in the United States and um, yeah. did really this truly to like French gastronomical vision and uh, Swiss technique and uh, created his own flavors. And uh, from there on, the, the company slowly just got larger and larger and then moved to New Hampshire. And mm -hmm. that's where we are today. And uh, we have, uh, we're now really much doing the same thing as 20, 30 years ago, just on a much larger scale. So and you I have an online component, part, right? Yeah. yeah, I myself be part of this, like, uh, half of the existence of the company. I'm here for 15 years, so, like, mm -hmm. since 2002. But um, his wife, Paula, who is also one of our uh, founders, she joined the business after two, three years and brought a lot of, of the, um, like, like, presentational vision to it because mm -hmm. she... Um, went to the Fashion uh, Technology Institute here in New York, and uh, she uh, created packaging and everything else, and this is what shaped the company. Well, you know, 19, I feel like 19, the years 1985 to 87 were pivotal in the growth of um, the American culinary movement, uh, and many will agree you had so many wonderful chefs emerging from that period, as well yeah. as artists and producers, including Larry Burdick and... Uh, it, it really was a pivotal time, and I, I am fortunate, Michael, because that's when I moved to New York from uh, the Deep South and became very involved in the food scene. Um, and it, it, it was an exciting time uh, that I don't think it's been rivaled since, personally, because it was just such this energy, coast to yeah, coast. Yeah, it was new. It was like you were very brave. People were very brave doing this, and like uh, it was a belief in, a, in something that, yes, quality will stand it, it will prevail, and... Um, Everything was like created pretty much by the verdicts themselves, and right. uh, I was became very early actually connected with it because, as you mentioned before, I was working under uh, Greg Coons at Les Binars. Mm -hmm. I was a pastry mm -hmm. there in the early '90s, and how I got first by touch in it was like when Greg came to me and said, "Like Michael, I really like your petty fours and everything else, but I think with chocolates after after dinner, I want something that is the really the top quality that I can find." Right. and in our kitchen environment, we have heat, we have done the right conditions to work with mm -hmm. chocolate, and I show you some samples of something who I think really does it to the bone. And, like, I saw the samples that, like, oh, this is great. And, actually, this was the only food item at Les Pinas that we didn't make on premises. We were actually wow. customers at that point from Burdick's. And we, every week we got 10 pounds of, of, of fresh-made um, 
handmade, uh, no preservative chocolates that we served at, uh, after dinner, and uh, mm-hmm. the customers loved it, and that's how I got my first connection with Larry. And like, um, it uh, was to me really an admiring stage, and that comes to it that that's how I stumbled basically in the business because at one point he he called me up and said like, hey, do you want to come up and and, and run the show and. Uh, I was intrigued and honored, and uh, that was back in 2002, basically. Because so, you, you basically were studied, you were studied as a pastry chef, or did you kind of grow up? I started originally as a cook. A I cook. started okay. in Europe as a cook, and I worked in several uh, then very, very famous freestyle Michelin restaurants, which no longer mm. exist today. Mm. But um, to me, backwards looking, that was a string, a stronghold that I come from savory food and went from mm-hmm. there into dessert because it gives you a very much more, it gives you more like a, a wider vision of what you can do with flavors. Mm-hmm. And um, in the old European way, how you trained in kitchens, as always, you had to also be able to know a lot about desserts, mm-hmm. which I think is good because it, it really brings the whole concept of a meal from the uh, beginning of the Amis Girl, Amis Bush appetizer, all the way back to the dessert. And something all has to talk to each other and has to be one theme. And that, I think, is for pastry chefs in general the challenge to see if I create a dessert, um, it has to fit somehow in the style of the food and uh, that you eat before. So otherwise, you, you come to dessert and you think like you're sitting in a different restaurant. And uh, mm-hmm. that helped me a lot in my pastry chef careers. And uh, so I stumbled basically from cooking to pastry. From pastry, I came to chocolate. And here you are. And, and, and according to the bio on Burdick, and by the way, for everybody listening, it's B-U-R-D-I-C-K chocolate. Dot com yeah. if you want to check it out. Uh, they say your responsibility is to develop the flavors, textures, and complexities found in our confections while maintaining the integrity and freshness that the company is known for. So talk us a little bit through that process of creating, because, I mean, they're, these are exquisite, exquisite chocolates. So talk about Thank the little you. process. Thank you so much. Um, yes, it is, it is pretty much so when, when, when I uh, started with the company, Larry and I, we knew each other already for 10 years, basically, mm-hmm. and we we always had a common culinary ground, how we talked, and uh, basically at that point, being then part of this, he said, like, I want you also to be part of the developing and everything else. Uh, mm-hmm. The dialogue was always, like, pretty much on a daily basis, and then mm-hmm. more and more, um, it became, like, part of, like, uh, a fact where, like, after several years in the beginning that I pretty much had free range of what I could uh, develop and introduce as new products to Burdick's. However, we always were in direct uh, conversation and, and taste exchange if we want to tweak it here a little bit. And uh, that is still going on to this day that I still love that influence. But uh, mm-hmm. pretty much it, it's, it's when you already have two people that say, would write music together, but they have somehow the same idea already of how the style should be. Some great, some great tunes can show up, and that's that's basically what 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 we uh, developed and and have established. And um, to this day, so I I can do a lot of things that I pretty much in my vision, and uh, I keep on doing them. Well, you and on the website, there's what they call classic verdict which we can talk about. And then I assume mm-hmm. there's the, 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 you know, the, the evolutionary burdick. How would you just compare the two, explain the two for those listening who've never had a burdick chocolate? 
Absolutely. And give an, ex- so and give an example of it. Yes. Um, like when you look at the classic verdicts, they are the, the, the part of the, of the uh, creations, the bonbons that we are um, doing since day one. And they're not mm-hmm. going to disappear. And I think they shouldn't because that's part of the reason of doing something classic and traditional. I'm, I'm very, I'm, I like to be contemporary and, and feed something that is new to uh, uh, a trend or even be part of that trend. But I do not want to necessarily drop uh, the traditions that are somehow established and that I really like because the beauty of food is you eat it over and over again when you like it. Mm-hmm. And even so for future generations to come, that they have the possibility to experience that, what actually someone liked already before 20, 30 years ago and was brilliant. So like if you take the chocolate mice, for example, we do them since day one and we will continue doing them. Tell tell us about the mice. Why the mice? The mice are a little bit a signature piece because with everything what we did with like the series and all the flavors and the assortments of the fine French-style bonbons that we do, the mice are a handmade created uh, novelty that looks like a miniature mouse. It mm-hmm. has a little silk tail and they are adored. But they also have a lot of culinary um, creativity behind them and taste wonderful. So it was bringing in the seriousness of a really uh, focused chocolate assortment, something that is a little bit lighthearted and cute and brings immediately a smile on everybody's face. And the mice, so just is, so we know, have, have, have uh, interior. It says dark chocolate with an orange interior, milk correct. chocolate with a mocha interior, white chocolate with a cinnamon interior, with yes. almond ears. So, that's, so it's not just a hard, dense chocolate. There's, there's something inside the mice. Yeah, you have a little bit. You have nuts go with chocolate. You have the different flavors go with chocolate. Mm-hmm. It is a it is a whipped chocolate ganache, uh, which is um, an, an interior of chocolate mixed with a liquid most of the time. In this game, good uh, local cream from New Hampshire, and uh, then flavoring agents. And uh, but these are very classic also in their flavor style. So they're part of that classic verdict line. Mm-hmm. The same are. Most of our chocolate bonbons, uh, which are in the assortments, which are flavors uh, that range from mocha to uh, um, South American cocoa bean flavors with with Caribbean rum to uh, uh, a a really, really intense raspberry bonbon. And then we have some things that are a little bit more contemporary that went over time, got influenced. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, all of a sudden we introduced salted caramels and also then put different flavors on this. We have one with, that is matched with cardamom and we use a, a, a sea salt from Cyprus. So that was something okay that becomes more a contemporary line or uh, we just um, bring uh, the focus on more uh, in our uh, uh, chocolate uh, uh, dark chocolate bars uh, towards single source origins, which is, I think, a very important aspect because you mm-hmm. go uh, from like, let's say, 20 years ago, everybody cared about, okay, it has to be dark chocolate to be of serious cocoa bean flavor. And now it goes so far that you can say, yes, you can actually narrow it down to the regions of where, where these beans right. are coming from and compare them. And that's where I think it gets interesting. The same what is in the wine world already right. established for, um, yeah, since day one, basically, that people compare 
the style of Bordeaux to Burgundy or to California. Mm-hmm. Here we go and we compare the style of Venezuelan beans to Madagascar or Bolivia, and you have very much characteristic differences. And that is something we we focus more on in the in the last I would say decade or so, and 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 want to highlight this. And that's that's really part of the uh, more contemporary part. And this is constantly moving on. There will always uh, new aspects coming to this in this section. Well, I always think that's interesting. I love I love two things. I love really dark, almost bitter chocolate. I like it that way. Correct. Very yeah. in, in very small amounts, but mm-hmm. I love it. And then I also love, which I know Burdick Chocolates sells, is chocolate-covered dried fruits and fruits. Hurry up. Just, oh, love, 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 love that. <laughs> uh, just give me a, an apricot with a little bit of chocolate, and I'm in heaven, or a chocolate-covered blueberry, and you know, I'm just in heaven. And those are probably more contemporary styles, but I just love them. Um, I'm fascinated by, so if I was buying, or we were buying, we were listening, a, a, a bar of chocolate, is there a certain percentile? What does the percentile mean uh, in, in, for those who are uninitiated? Okay, I'm happy you bring this up because I think there is right now also so much of a a misconception in the public Uh when it comes to cocoa percentages. Mm -hmm. Like if you ask me, my answer would be my favorite cocoa percentage is the one that fits the character of the bean the best. And that is, of course, a little bit hard to find out when you never tasted the chocolate. But right. to simply say, oh, I want minimum of 75% of, of cocoa is not a good approach when you actually purchase chocolate. It would be, I compare to if you would go into a wine store and you would say, I would like a 14% alcohol wine. This is what suits me. And it is important what quality of the bean is there. If you have... 80% cocoa of an inferior cocoa bean, you have 80% of something really bad tasting. Mm. So in that case, it's much better to have this as a much lower percentage if you want to eat it at all. But even with the high-quality cocoa beans, the, 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 just to explain a little bit, because not everybody knows what actually the rest of the percentage in chocolate stands for, mm-hmm. if you have dark chocolates where you say 70% is cocoa content, Usually, 29.9995 is sugar at that point. So you have 66%, you have 33.9995. But this sugar is not necessarily uh, seen also as a negative. It actually balances the certain flavor characteristics that are in the cocoa bean. So if you have, for example, a cocoa from Madagascar, which is character classically characterized by a more light body chocolate but of very high fruity acidity. Doing that in an 80% cocoa becomes very astringent because the acidity gets so aggressive that it's not nice, not nice palatable and to right. eat. So I say a Madagascar chocolate bar mostly shows actually very lovely in the lower 60 percentages if it's of good quality. While you take a bar from Venezuela which has less acidity, has actually a more nutty flavor and more dried fruit flavor, uh, shows very weak in the lower percentages. So it really is, tends more to, okay, what chocolate I'm actually dealing with? And this is where, again, the origin of the cocoa is so important. And um, 
I would say that's why you will find a lot of our chocolates are often in the mid-60s in, in mm-hmm. the percentages. And that is mostly because at that point the balance of flavors and, the ba- and really the, the finesse of the, of the little uh, side notes that you find in the chocolate, they show the best at these ratios of chocolate, cocoa versus sugar in the chocolate. So you should know your origin of, and I don't really know what there's any legal labeling laws on, on chocolate, but you should know your origin of the chocolate, first of all, where it's if, from. If, if you can yeah. find out, not every chocolate has that. Right. Some are just simply organic dog or some are labeled mm-hmm. dog. But if you can get the or- origin of a bean, it helps mm-hmm. so much because there are so many quality differences in, on, in, in the cocoa world. Right. Um, Besides the different varieties of cocoa that are there, which if I mm-hmm. go to this, we're probably exceeding weight our time here. But yeah. uh, even the different origins, there are characteristics that come through. And like, uh, unfortunately, that the um, main continental African beans mostly are considered of lower quality. Mm-hmm. Um, Madagascar, as, as the island off the coast of Africa, is considered an exception. Um, mm-hmm. While South American and Caribbean cocoa beans are in general always considered of a very high quality. Interesting. There are always exceptions, but it is, it is a guideline to look by. Well, I think, Michael, uh, this gives us a good uh, point to, as we wrap up the call, to let everybody know that if you'd like to try um, different single-source dark chocolate bars, verdictchocolate.com has a seven-pack single-source uh, for $60 where you can try yeah. different chocolates of different origin. You can also buy individual bars, but I think that's just a great gift, a uh, house gift when you go visit people. Uh, uh, just- absolutely. Yeah, so one last thing for anyone who's visiting New York, where's, what's the location in Soho, if you can share that? Or should they go well, to the website? Well, the Soho location is just about to open. We are uh-huh. in the last stages of finishing the store. We okay. are, will be located on 156 Prince Street, be, mm-hmm. that is right uh, on the corner of West Broadway and Prince and Soho. Uh-huh. You can also find us uh, in, in Cambridge uh, on uh-huh. Rattle Street and in Boston on Clarendon Street. And if you want to drive up to the foliage of New England, you can come to Walpole, New Hampshire, and uh, see our beautiful flagship store there. Uh, we're and also on Facebook and Instagram on Verdict Chocolate, right. and on Twitter handle is Verdict Chocolate without the E in the end, because unfortunately they don't allow us. Well, I can't wait to pop pop some chocolate in my mouth soon. And I want to thank you, Michael Klug, for being a guest today. For everybody there, you've been listening to The Connected Table Live with Melanie Young. Go out and have a delicious day. We'll talk to you and talk to you on the radio next week. And, of course, you can find us anytime on iHeart.com and the free iHeart app. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) 